Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Don't miss out on your chance to listen to four-time Super Bowl champ Charlie Weiss on the only podcast solely devoted to everyone's favorite position in football, the quarterback. Listen for free now by subscribing wherever you get podcasts or by going to CelebrityQB.com. Welcome, 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 everyone. It's another edition of the Fantasy Throwdown Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Callender. Uh, got a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, for those of you who were on the receiving end of some of my texts last night, I apologize. But to be perfectly frank, the, <laughs> the debacle that was the Yankees game last night with the Indians, you can't, you can't drop, make that up. I mean, that was insane. It, the fact that we could chase Corey Kluber from a game, be up five runs comfortably with CC in a rhythm and cruising, and to blow the game in which it was blown with a clear mistake by a manager on national television that everyone can plainly see was a mistake and a freeze. It's just utterly devastating, especially in a short playoff series. I mean, if this was a seven-game series, okay, maybe you could rebound. In a five-game series, when you know you needed to win the game two, uh, just to avoid having to rally uh, from 0-2, I mean, it, it is absolutely devastating uh, what happened with uh, Joe Girardi in, <laughs> in what can only be called a clusterfuck. I, I mean, <laughs> that's that's the not kindest way of phrasing that. I, I mean, it, it really is just... <laughs> it, oh, God. It, okay, let, let's rewind back uh for someone who's living under a rock of what happened in that game. Uh, back in uh, the sixth inning, CC Sabathia walked the first batter, got Jay Bruce to fly out. Girardi pulls him, even though he had retired 12 of the last 13 Cleveland Indians batters. Basically cruising with an 8-3 lead. He brings in Chad Green who was warming up no less than four separate times 
in the bullpen. So he brings him in. Green clearly didn't have any stuff. Wasn't effective in the strike zone. And uh, to be fair, you know, the kid was used pretty heavily against the Twins. Uh, and it's a short turnaround uh, in terms of a bullpen arm. The amount of pitches he threw compared to his usual level of output, it was it was high. So, you know, sometimes that will happen to a bullpen arm. Sometimes you don't have it. I mean, that's something that your little binder that Girardi operates under can't quantify it. You, you know, sometimes you actually have to go by common sense rule where you got you, you, you overused a guy and technically when you're overusing a guy, his performance is not actually going to be there. That kind of happened with Kluber uh, last night. It's Kluber didn't have his stuff. You could tell he wasn't locating his pitches and he got run out of there early uh, Francona gave him as much of a leash as he could, but at the end of the day, Kluber was completely ineffective. Same deal with Green, but the point was, there was no need to lift Sabathia. Sabathia was doing exactly what the Yankees needed him to do, and he knew how to kind of navigate around the, the batting order. I mean, there was nothing in Sabathia's performance that indicated that he was tiring. See, he only threw 77 pitches. Girardi, in the postgame, mentioned that the pitch count for your Sabathia was allowing him to go up to 90. But because Sabathia didn't use that many pitches through the first six innings, he wasn't even at 90. But Girardi's playbook, apparently, for the pregame was to lift him at that point in the game. Which, you know, guess what? Sometimes the plan doesn't go exactly the way you want it to. But in a good way. Sometimes when you, things are going well for you, you don't want to mess up. And, I mean, sometimes keeping it simple is the best strategy. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why Joe Girardi couldn't figure that out. So, that was the most egregious mistake, in my opinion, was the, the fact that Sabathia was even lifted in the first place. The second mistake was just pure freezing in the moment because for all intents and purposes, that ball should have been reviewed regardless if it was a hit by pitch or not. When Gary Sanchez is signaling to you and pointing, I think it hit the bat. I know Sanchez doesn't communicate in English that well, but it's clear that he's pointing saying something was up and to challenge it. The only person on the field who can challenge that play in that moment is Joe Girardi. It's the sixth inning. The umpire's responsibility from the seventh inning on is to do any video replay reviews. That's the rule. So the umpire's going to do anything. No one else on the Yankees could do anything except Joe Girardi. And Joe Girardi is standing there saying in the postgame press conference, A, he didn't get a clear look at it, and the video guys didn't tell him uh, that he needed to challenge it. Okay, so he's already kind of throwing the video guys under the bus there, whether he wants to admit it or not. And two, for all intents and purposes, he's ignoring Sanchez. I, I You know, it, there's nothing to say, you know, that challenge was going to go wasted because, okay, if the umps say that it's not irrefutable evidence, 
So what? It's going to go into the 7th anyway, and they're going to have control of all the video replay reviews. So what are you saving on to your challenge for? You had multiple challenges. You had two challenges. You didn't use either one of them. So there's no downside to actually challenging the play. And there's no point in ignoring your actual players on the field. If Sanchez is telling you to look at it, look at it. Now, I know Girardi and Sanchez do not get along that well based off of some of the interactions they have. Because being a catcher, Girardi is just setting his ways about what a catcher should and shouldn't do. And in some part, I feel as though Sanchez reminds him a bit too much of Jorge Posada coming up through the Yankee system and taking Girardi's job as the starting catcher even though he was clearly an inferior defensive catcher than Girardi was, but because of his offensive bat, got the job anyway, which in no uncertain terms ticked off Girardi. To this day, Girardi and Posada don't really get along. Even though Girardi managed Posada, they did not get along, and that, that, that's been well established over the years. But, you know, the fact that Sanchez is a young player, Coming up through the ranks, yes, he gives up way too many pass balls. Yes, technically, he's not sound blocking the plate, but he throws out runners at a particularly above-average clip, which is better than league average of around 33%. Sanchez is about 40%. Uh, you know, it is hard to argue against that he's completely deficient behind the plate, which is sometimes a narrative that gets told. So even with all that background history, aside for Joe Girardi to sit there and say that he didn't have enough time to review the play goes against the point of what the whole process is the point is to give your bullpen enough time to get ready for Lindor being at the plate instead he leaves Green in there because somehow Green had this great rhythm that Joe Girardi didn't want to disrupt even though he couldn't locate his fastball. You know, if you actually just come out and say that, you know what, guys, I screwed up, you know, this one's on me, that would garner so much more favor with the price of the fans than what he actually said last night, which was essentially, you know what, uh, the video replay guys didn't tell me what I needed to know, which is such a cop-out, in my opinion. I mean, the cover-up's always worse than the crime, but, you know, the actual crime itself was overthinking uh, what the actual game situation was, pulling CC, and then compounding it by freezing in a critical moment. Instead, he just kind of said, this was the game plan. This was the strategy we were utilizing. And even if he comes back after the fact that says that he made a mistake and he owned it, it it's, it's completely worthless now because he didn't own it in the moment when it happened. It, it, like he was searching for an excuse to absolve himself of the blame, which is, the exact opposite of what a leader is supposed to do. So, with all that being said, because there was the whole matter of Therese being in the game, getting picked off, then you having defensive issues at third base, you know, maybe the Yankees pull off a comeback to win the series. Maybe. I think they're getting swept tomorrow because after a loss like that, that typically takes out any momentum. The Yankees are, uh, are saying the right things in the locker room. But, man, it, it is a tough sell coming into the Bronx tomorrow if they don't score early and that crowd starts getting restless and getting on them because it is very well possible that's the likely outcome. 
So even if Tanaka pitches well, I think the Yankees are in trouble if they don't score early. So, you know, long term, I, I also think this is incredibly damaging for Girardi because he's in the final year of his contract. The Yankees are at a crossroads. They got a young nucleus that they can build around. So do you want to have the voice of this uh, young group be Joe Girardi, who already seems to have issues with Sanchez that have been going on throughout the year, also seems to have no confidence in Dylan Betances, even though the Betances uh, had a critical role for us at the bullpen uh, throughout most of the year when Chapman couldn't get on track and was serving as the closer. Uh, you know, all of a sudden now, Batanta starts going sideways again. Girardi doesn't even want to look at him as much less use him because you know, again, high leverage situations. Batanta is nowhere to be found. He took the L last night after going in for another inning of work and uh, for his third inning of work in the thirteenth. But you know, I, I look at it and I say that uh, Batanta essentially is. The, one of the last options in the bullpen at this point with Girardi. And, you know, it doesn't have a good look to it. I, you know, I think it speaks more towards these younger players could be starting to turn, tune out Girardi because he keeps coming down like an overbearing parrot. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is going to be a youth movement for the Yankees one way or another uh, because the Steinbrenners are not looking to spend the money the way that George did. So, uh, at the end of the day, the Yankees may need to look in a direction where you're getting a younger, that's more relatable players still using some analytical analysis. Hopefully not the extent Girardi does. Cause sometimes Girardi overthinks things that should be relatively simple, but you know, I would say that the overall dynamic for this Yankees team is, this was a year early anyway, but I still look at this as more of a situation where you got a young group of players may need someone else to actually bring them over the top because for the bulk of Girardi's career, he's been a very good manager, but I don't think he's a great manager. I don't think he's one that necessarily elevates a team. I think he can patch up holes where you have deficiencies, but then he overworks some of the areas where uh, you definitely get into issues. I mean, Joe Torre did that all the time too, but Joe Torre did it from a uh, more of a instance where he just went by his gut. Girardi goes by using his statistical analysis and sticks by that in all situations, which is what got him into trouble last night. So I think the biggest thing for the Yankees going forward is to figure out if that's the route that they want to maintain. And maybe they give Girardi a contract extension. But I think some of the relationships Girardi has uh, let go by the wayside, I don't think that's something that you can easily fix. And, that, and I think that's a long-term issue Yankees have to deal with. So, yeah, we, we also had other games going on last night <laughs> uh, besides the Yankees debacle. Uh you had the Cubs, uh, Nationals, uh, you know, <laughs> the Nationals, true to form in the postseason, became the Nationals. Uh, you know, they squandered a brilliant performance by Steven Strasburg in what was essentially a must-win game because Scherzer isn't available until game three 
with his hamstring injury. So now you got uh, Gio Gonzalez going uh, tonight, uh, trying to shoulder the load for Washington. Uh, in terms of the Cubs, uh, Lester's on the mound, so he's going to be pretty solid. I, I don't really see Lester giving up all that much. So you're basically relying on Gio Gonzalez to not give up more than two runs. It would, that's a really tough spot. I mean, maybe he can get away with three, but like, I kind of look at this like the Nationals have to score at least four runs to uh, win this game. Maybe, maybe five. I, I I don't think Gio's going to be able to hold them down that much. Maybe maybe uh, they, they catch some breaks here and there. But, you know, ideally, I, I think they're going to have to try to get to Lester early, uh, work up his pitch count, and get into the Cubs' bullpen and, you know, roll the dice that way because uh, – the Nationals were a bit too passive for my liking last night. Uh, Hendricks did a great job. I mean, that was a <laughs> that was like an Andy Pettit special right there with Hendricks because he was throwing up junk but had pinpoint accuracy and was keeping the Nationals off balance. I mean, Harper really didn't get into a good rhythm. It, it felt in his at bats. Uh, you know, Murph was a bit off. So I, I look for the Nationals to be more aggressive with their swings tonight. Uh, but, uh, you know, they kind of put themselves in, in a tight spot because, you know, at the end of the day, they, they really need to get uh, a little bit uh, more out of that offense. Because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they could say all they want about that pitching staff, but the Scherzer can't go. Pitching is absolutely even from a starter perspective, and the bullpen is uh, an absolute nightmare for the Nationals. So anything they can do to generate offense is only going to benefit them long run. So uh, Nationals got a must-win game tonight. And then with the Dodgers, Diamondbacks, again, uh, Kershaw did not look good. Uh, I mean, four home runs, it's it's just not a good look. And, you know, say what you will, the Dodgers offense uh, came through in game one and got the job done. But, you know, that's... That that to me was more of a you know, sign of encouragement for the Diamondbacks than the Dodgers. Uh, I, I look at that and I'm saying, you know, as a Dodgers fan, I get a little bit nervous tonight because Rich Hill is a notorious slow starter. Uh, I believe his ERA is in the five or six range uh, first inning uh, throughout the year, and you know, the the Diamondbacks are still hot swinging the bat, so. I, I think the uh, the D backs can steal game two because I've liked Robbie Ray. Uh, I thought Robbie Ray was going to be a sleeper uh, uh, before the season started uh, in fantasy. I tried to dra- uh, draft Robbie Ray in all my leagues because I thought he was a breakout candidate, and yeah, he was uh, absolutely. Uh, I think this is a clear game where uh, the Dodgers are in danger of dropping uh, dropping a game at home. I. I I felt uh, that uh, kind of going in is that, you know, that game two matchup uh, was going to be where Arizona can make this series interesting. So uh, for the Dodgers, you know, not a great start to the series. I mean, they got the W and that's what counts. But, you know, I, I would uh, I'd be very hard pressed to say that I, I, I was uh, enthused with the victory. So. Uh, that that's another series to kind of keep a, an eye out for, and you know, and lastly, the Red Sox uh, Stroh series. I mean, Stroh's just 
have just jumped on the Red Sox. And, you know, Boston's trying to hang in there. But, I mean, down 0-2, you don't have a starting pitching staff. We're for lick right now. I mean, Sale got lit up. Uh, Pomerantz got lit up. Uh, who are you throwing out for game three? Uh you know, I I, I I didn't look. I, I think it might be Fister. Uh, I mean, really, it does. To be honest, it really doesn't. I mean, it could be Porcello. Does it really matter at, at this point? I mean, yeah, the Red Sox need to hit their way out to win this series. I mean, the pitching staff ain't going to save their asses. Uh, I mean, unless uh, a Sale, uh, they get a win and Sale comes back and dominates in game four to uh, put the pressure on Houston for game five. I mean, that's really what this comes down to. Red Sox have to slug. That's it. There, 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 there's no way of uh, uh, coming up with a deep analysis of this series because uh, Houston came came to ball. Red Sox, you know, put up a couple of runs, but, you know, you got to put pressure on that Houston pitching staff. Uh, you know, two runs ain't going to get it done. You need to score six, seven runs to make it a game against Houston. And so far, uh, Boston's been in the, incapable of doing that. So if they want if they want to extend that series past, uh, uh, past game three, they're going to have to score six or seven runs easily to uh, make, make it happen. So uh, that's all for baseball right now. Uh, got a couple of interesting games coming up for college football. You got Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, you uh, you've also got uh, Washington State, Oregon. So you got some interesting matchups there. But you know, one of the mat- uh, things that I saw, and it was just mind blowing, was in terms of the LSU Florida game, because LSU, uh, if you didn't see the news, lost to Troy last week, and you know. It's about as embarrassing of losses you can have for a D1 program like LSU. I mean, you pay, I mean, you pay these schools, uh, these uh, FCS schools, to show up to get their ass kicked. Uh, and Troy, you know, took the money and put it on them. So LSU doesn't look good offensively, doesn't look good defensively. They, they got a lot of holes that they need to fix. And, you know, Florida... You know, even without having any remotely good uh, quarterback play, uh, I mean, Del Rio's injured for Florida, so there's a lot going on with the Florida program that, again, will with Jim McElvain, I think he's he's in a tight uh, spot as well. So, uh, you know, Florida's in a spot where they need to win. Uh, uh, they need to win bad too. So Ed Orgeron's got a. Big deal on his hands with LSU. He needs a win. And, you know, the craziest thing about all this is that Ed Orgeron somehow has a $12 million buyout with LSU, which to me, there was like only two things that could explain that. A, you were high as a kite when you came up with that contract. Or B, you were in the middle of a strip club and like miswrote something on the piece of paper you wrote the contract together with, because you know, it doesn't make any sense why a career assistant coach would ever get a $12 million buyout without actually having a coaching resume to justify such a, no one was actually coming after Ed Orgeron. He was 10 and 25 at Ole Miss. 
He was six and two when he uh, was uh, the assistant at USC when Lane Kiffin got canned, and he was six and two last year with LSU when Les Miles got canned. But being an assistant head coach, being promoted to the head coach when your team is in turmoil, is completely different than actually being the overall head coach. And the reason being for that is the fact that you know when you're the interim, you can do a rah rah speech. Get everybody fired up, and you go after it. Head coach, completely different uh, set of circumstances there. And, you know, that's where I, I feel as though sometimes guys get caught up in the story rather than the reality situation. LSU was getting caught up in the story of selling it as, hey, look, we know what we're doing. We're, we're bringing back a, a local boy to turn around the program and sell it to uh, the fan base. And, you know, you got burned by it. I mean, it's simple as that, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. So uh, you got the LSU-Florida matchup. Uh, We talked about uh, uh, some of the other uh, matchups uh, coming up this weekend. Not a lot of top five matchups, uh, so you don't have that. I mean, you've got TCU-West Virginia. Uh, which is on tap. Uh, you know, TCU should win that game. Uh, it'll be, I think it'll be a tight game. I, I think they had the line at 14 points, which I, I think is a bit ridiculous. I think West Virginia is better than that. So, uh, yeah, that should be a tighter matchup. But, uh, you know, the other premier, well, I shouldn't say premier. I, I would say uh, notable matchup <laughs> just because of the history behind it is uh, Miami-Florida State. Now, Florida State, this is basically their Super Bowl because Florida State ain't going anywhere this year. Uh, You know, Ricky Francois went down. You know, the whole team seemed to have gone down with them. They never responded back after that. They'll be up for this game, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, from a standpoint of how confident would I feel if I was a Florida State fan... You know, I think they'll make a game of it. I think Miami wins it. I think it'll be close just because it, it usually always comes down to a last-minute play by Miami to uh, Miami or Florida State. Or if it comes down to a, a kicker, it's like, you know, you can only play so many clips of wide right or wide left to uh, poor Bobby Bowden's face on the sidelines. But, you know, I think it'll be a tight game. But, you know, at the end of the day... It, I think it ends up being a, a close win for Miami, but you know, I think it's more of a byproduct of the local rivalry driving this more than the actual uh, skill level on the field and technique. Because it looks as though Florida State, for all the talent that they have, didn't have the motivation after Francois went down. They'll be up for this game. I doubt they'll be up for many other games after this one, but that just seems to be the way it works. I, I think it's going to be a lot of individual play on Florida state from here on out, but uh, it should get a decent game going forward. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, Washington state pulls it out against uh, Oregon. Uh, I would look out for the Wisconsin, Nebraska game just from the standpoint of Nebraska desperately needs a win. I mean, that program is in such turmoil right now. Uh, Wisconsin should win, uh, should win handily, 
but uh, you know that's not a matchup. Uh, you got uh, some of the early uh, noon kickoff games. Uh, there was a uh, uh, that just kicked off. Uh, you had uh, uh, Oklahoma, Iowa State, uh, uh, Penn State going against uh, Northwestern. Uh, you know, these are all games where it's like, eh, you know, uh, Northwestern could be a little bit dangerous for Penn State, but uh, Penn State has a ton of talent, so I, I don't really see it. Then you've got. Oklahoma against Iowa State. Iowa State down a couple of quarterbacks uh, uh, just uh, because there was a quarterback who had to leave for personal reasons, I believe. Uh, you know, Oklahoma is favored by a couple of touchdowns. Uh, I think they'll cover it just because it's a backup in there. But, you know, sometimes these so you get funky things happening, uh, especially in Oklahoma. But, you know, they, sh- they should be fine. Uh, Wake against Clemson, again, uh, Clemson should be fine, uh, uh, you know, but like so, usually sometimes you'll get these lazy weekends where uh, a top team goes down, uh, Ugga is another one that, you know, Georgia's got uh, Vanderbilt, I I expect Georgia to roll, uh, you know, shouldn't be a problem, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it works, uh, Auburn, all miss, again, Auburn should roll, yeah, th- th- I mean, there were like a ton of these matchups where you look at them and you say, these teams should roll. Notre Dame playing North Carolina. North Carolina's Tar Heels been terrible this year. Uh, they should roll. So a lot of tight matchups. And then you, you got uh, some off-the-radar type mat- uh, matchups that uh, just tend to be interesting because of the teams involved. Uh, Navy, Air Force. Usually ends up being a tight game just because of the service academies, the rivalry with with each other. So, you know, a lot going on. uh, But, you know, nothing that jumps out at you saying that uh, you're going to have, like, something tremendous happening in one of these games. I just think you'll have close games, but nothing nothing too jaw-dropping that transpires. So, uh, that's it for college football uh want to get into uh soccer uh with the u.s men's national team so uh, for those of you who haven't been following the u.s men's national team qualifying process for the world cup has been anything but easy uh you you had a lot (laughs) of missteps uh by the u.s national team uh with uh just lackluster performances Costa Rica embarrassing us, not looking great uh, against Honduras. Uh, you know, U.S. national team needed a big win against Panama, and they got it. And surprise, surprise, it wasn't because of, you know, grit and determination and spirit. This is tactics. Putting Christian Pulisic in a central attacking role is what should have happened a long time ago, and we finally got it. You know, Pulisic is the future of this uh, team, one way or another. So, putting him in the best possible position to succeed is probably something you should be doing for your actual team. So, Pulisic, from the word go, was right after it, dominated the play, got a goal uh, within the first, uh, I believe it was the eighth minute of the game. Uh, Just beautiful play the entire way through, uh, you know, 
made life so much easier for his teammates because uh, he, he, he a pair up with Josie Altador. He drift off to the side. He had so much avenues to actually uh, play with the ball and, you know, made made us look like a dynamic offense, which is one thing we have not had in this qualifying process was anything dynamic. I mean, basically, we were trying to break teams down who were packing it in, and then we would get absolutely buried on a counterattack because our defense still is terrible. We don't have a central back pairing, but we'll get to that at another point. But tonight was, you know, focusing on what we can do well, and what we can do well is play through Christian Pulisic. He's the future of the U.S. soccer, has been for a while. I mean, in terms of where we uh, the U.S. men's national team goes from here, uh, should be able to roll through Trinidad and Tobago, the land of my parents, but not so much of a soccer nation anymore. Uh, should be able to roll through and uh, officially clinch the qualifying spot. But that was a huge performance. Now, if we could get anything out of our central forwards, because, yes, while Bobby Wood and Josie Altidore both scored, Pulisic literally had to gift wrap goals for them. If they could actually finish on their own, we'd be talking a whole different story with the U.S. national team. Uh, maybe there's hope for Wood developing into that kind of player. I don't expect uh, anything to uh, really uh, work for Josie at this point. It is He is what he is at this point. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't see anything else uh, drastically coming out of the central uh, forward position. But, you know, hope ever springs eternal uh, comes uh, World Cup time next year. But, you know, I look at it and I say I feel better about the team than I did a week ago. But really that's more or less along the lines of Bruce Arena got his head out of his ass and actually started putting players into the spots they needed to be in. Which is a sign of progress, but the fact that it took this long and for us to be in this desperate a spot is what's so frustrating about U.S. soccer at the moment. But, not to end it on a downer, but, you know, it is what it is. You know, if you can talk about uh, the spirit and grit and dynamic of the team all you want and leadership, but, I mean, Panama wanted to win the game just as much as the U.S. did. I mean, the Panamanian players were crying during their national anthem. That's how much it meant to them, you know, going into this game, like how amped up they were for it. But, you know, they weren't as talented and they weren't as skilled. And technically, Christian Pulisic is just on a different level of some of those cats that were in the midfield with him. He carved them up. And, you know, when you have someone that dynamic and playing off of, that makes a difference. You know, and meanwhile, you, you got teams like Argentina that's not in position that could end up not qualifying for the World Cup, which is absolutely stunning when you have a player like Leo Me- Lionel Messi and Messi's doing everything for his team. And, you know, guys aren't scoring. You know, that that's the thing. is like soccer is a weird dynamic where you could do everything right and still not score if one guy doesn't do his job correctly. So... I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you have to put your players in the best position to succeed. And also, you got to get guys who can convert when they need to convert and it's like and do the job. So it, it's it's a delicate uh, uh, balance. But, you know, at the end of the day, like uh, 
I like basketball where one guy can literally dictate how the game goes. And uh, in other sports, yeah, it, it does end up being a kind of a team dynamic where you have to have a proper balance at all times because the fact that Argentina can end up not qualifying for the World Cup with as many dynamic strikers that they have because their backup strikers could not get the job done. I mean, that, that'd be an absolute travesty, but you know, I think that's where we're headed at this point with the world, uh, world cup qualifying process. I wish I had followed it Argentina uh, more closely, but you know, I thought they would have, would have actually figured out those issues ahead of schedule, but now it, it looks as though with nine out of the 10 games played that, yeah, they're going to miss it. So, uh, something to keep an eye out for in the next, uh, uh, next uh, month, maybe because it's right around the corner for the, uh, the 10th game. So we'll, we'll see how it, it eventually plays out. Moving on to the NBA, just to, uh, tie up a few loose ends because, you know, with, D. Wade going over to the Cavs. A lot of people have been talking about realignment, fixing the imbalance of the NBA system, tanking. You know, there's a lot with the NBA that can be fixed. But one thing that I do not see changing anytime soon is realignment. Because there's one main reason why realignment won't happen. And it's pretty simple to spell out. For everyone. The majority of the media markets. For television rights. Are on the east coast. So why on earth. Would ESPN. And ABC. Sign off. On a realignment schedule. That takes out the rest of the east coast. And possibly puts at risk. Knocking. Some eastern conference team. Out of the playoffs. For the likes of Portland to be in the uh, the playoffs. Not a knock against Portland or some of the smaller market teams uh, in the NBA. But the reality of the situation is that, you know, these networks are paying money for the league. And they want to have as many viewers as humanly possible. So they're going to focus on the major TV markets. That's just the way it works. Now, the other hand is that... In order for any realignment plan to take place, you have to get it ratified with 20 votes. Again, 20 votes, which means you're going to have to get Eastern Conference owners to sign off on a provision that would essentially make it harder for their teams to qualify for the playoffs. Again, what incentive could there possibly be for an Eastern Conference owner to actually sign off on a league proposal that uh, that would involve fewer Eastern Conference teams actually making the playoffs. So if you realign the playoff structure to be strictly based off a win-loss record, you'd have maybe five Eastern Conference teams that can make it at best. Again, why would anyone sign off on that? So... That's the long and short of it for why realignment won't work uh, in basketball. Because, you know, money-wise, there's no incentive to do any of these proposals. So, you know, as much as people won't like what they see out of the NBA product, 
that's the that's all there is gonna uh, there's gonna be for uh, for it this season because there's no incentive to change things because at the core of it, the NBA likes these super teams. They like having these superstar teams, and then they hope that the hardcore basketball fans will still stick around to watch their casual team. I mean, MSG still gets ratings for the Knicks. God bless those fans because it's tough enough watching Knicks basketball occasionally, especially when you know they're well out of playoff contention. And, you know, they do it anyway. So that's the way the NBA is going to operate. So as much as we want to throw our hands up and complain about how unfair it is that the Eastern Conference playoffs are so boring, get used to them because I don't see it changing anytime soon. And now, finally, I'm going to uh, wrap up with MMA because we've got uh, UFC coming up tonight. Uh, it's actually the main event's uh, going to be uh, the interim title for uh, uh, the uh, UFC light, uh, lightweight title with uh, essentially Conor McGregor uh, off buying houses and yachts with that Floyd Mayweather money uh, just because, you know, he doesn't actually need to fight, but the UFC has to continue on as if they're still a legitimate organization. So, I mean, the interim lightweight title is going to be between Tony Ferguson, who is possibly the most dangerous man in the division stand-up-wise, against Kevin Lee, a trash... Uh, talking brash fighter who has good stand-up, good takedown skills, good submission skills, all-around excellent fighter, just a complete pain in the ass to listen to more often than not. So it should be an entertaining fight, but I can't really be that up for this fight, and it's a very simple reason why. The circus surrounding this fight is the fact that Kevin Lee bragged about being able to lose 19 pounds in a day to cut weight to make the 155 weight limit at the weigh-ins yesterday he couldn't make weight he was at 156 the commission uh, the uh, uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission allowed him an extra hour to lose the weight to make the fight for a title fight you know I know what you're saying. Dwayne, why do you care about him losing weight? The way Kevin Lee looked for that weigh-in, he looked basically emaciated and dehydrated. It it was completely unhealthy how he looked. I mean, you know, one thing that you see with, I mean, you used to see with uh, wrestling, uh, not pro wrestling, actual wrestling, uh, and... uh, I mean, you see sometimes with boxing, too. Uh, you, you get guys who are carrying a lot of water weight and not eating healthy and not dieting the way that they should, then having to cut drastic amounts of weight just to make a weight limit so they don't actually have to give up the purse for missing weight. The problem with uh, this strategy is the fact that if you do too drastic of a weight cut and you dehydrate yourself, you leave yourself that much more susceptible to traumatic brain injury because, you know, the body is mostly made up of water, and if you dehydrate too severely, 
you're dehydrating your brain. This is not healthy at all under any circumstance. When I used to think of John McCain calling USC human cockfighting, I used to kind of chuckle at like how absurd that comment was. But we're actually getting the situation where you're seeing these promotions allowing fighters to do these drastic weight cuts and not blocking them from fighting. I mean, the the co-main event was actually a rescheduled fight because uh, Demetrius uh, uh, Mighty Mouse Johnson was supposed to fight Ray Borg uh, about a month ago, and that fight got postponed because Borg had serious health issues. Guess what? Try to do a drastic weight cut ahead of the fight, and the doctors literally had to stop him because of uh, the damage he was actually doing to himself. I mean, you know, the issue that people keep uh, saying is that if there were more weight divisions, this wouldn't be happening. My point is, you know, guys are always going to find ways of cheating around the system to do what they can to game it. But the way to actually fix uh, the problem of drastic weight cuts isn't to actually institute more divisions. It's to actually enforce the actual weight limits that these guys should be fighting under. So in order to keep them in the proper shape, there should be periodic weigh-ins leading up to the fight to make sure that they're at least within the ballpark of 10 pounds of the actual fight uh, weight that they're supposed to be at. Because then you could cut 10 pounds uh, uh, within a, a week or so of the fight. That that that, that That's manageable. When you're talking about over 10 pounds in two days or less, that's where you're like, you know, this is insane. I mean, these guys are less than 2% body fat. And so it shouldn't even come to this level of uh, where guys are literally killing themselves to get uh, to these weight limits. Uh, it, it, it's it's actually going to lead to someone getting killed at this point, uh, which is sad to say, but it's, it's the honest truth. I mean, I don't see where it ends without someone having to die in the ring or just some, uh, or just die leading up in a weight cut just to get into the weigh-ins before someone does something more serious about it because you know at the end of the day you know these guys they uh, they're getting paid a lot of money and you know for the organizations where they're still not making it, haven't made it to USC. If they're doing it in the USC, you know they're doing it at the lower levels. So, it, it, you know, someone has to draw the line somewhere, and it, it, it should be the USC if they actually want to uh, establish themselves as a legitimate uh, alternative to boxing, which they have for the most part. But with all the recent suspensions, John Jones, I'm looking at you, they've got a lot of the things to answer for especially heading into a contract year for their television rights deal with Fox. Uh, they they, they got to clean up a lot of things. And, you know, with that, that little uh, melee with uh, Lee heading into a title fight didn't help matter. So uh, I look at this and I say, you know, I hope, I hope Ferguson Lee put on a bar, barn burner. I hope it's a really great matchup, but I have a lot of concerns with uh, that match going on tonight, hopefully it works out and you get a good fight. But man, I I I just kind of 
shake my head and wonder when when the shoe's going to drop because you know sooner or later uh something bad's going to happen and everyone's going to be kind of looking around and say oh we kind of thought this was going to happen sooner or later and no one does anything about it so uh that's all i got for now i'll uh, dive into the nfl a bit uh, uh hopefully maybe tonight if not tomorrow morning for the games and for now And, uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got. So, uh, enjoy everything that's going on for the weekend guys and, uh, have a good one. talked about position in all of sports the quarterback and now there's a show solely dedicated to the most sought after role on the field celebrity qb featuring four-time super bowl champion coach charlie weiss unlike other football shows you'll get the inside scoop on all things quarterbacks like is this the year tom brady finally looks his age will dating danica patrick distract aaron Rodgers? i mean he's dating danica patrick charlie we're interested in that you know well i mean tommy's got giselle i'll, I'll take giselle okay <laughs> is dak prescott good enough to win a super bowl for the cowboys which rookie quarterback has the best shot of making a positive impact in 2018 how about intellectually charlie as far as what they ask the quarterbacks to do now the game has changed but the pressure that's put on quarterbacks and it always been put on quarterbacks is tremendous Join Charlie Weiss and co-host Steve Strout on an all-new podcast from Lasting Media, exclusively about quarterbacks. Subscribe now at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Celebrity QB, everyone's favorite position. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.